0: So it's a big word and uh, we talk about it a lot, we hear about it a lot and perhaps you think about it a lot. Um, It's happiness. Happiness is something that the world talks a lot about and a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, You see it being portrayed in movies, you see artists singing about it, writing lyrics and songs about it. But happiness, how would you define it? How would you describe it? What is happiness? What does it look like? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? What is happiness? And and maybe here's a better question and maybe even a a bigger question. What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be happy? Is happiness love? Is that what happiness is? Is it having someone to love and having someone to love us? Is, Is that happiness? Is that all there is to it? Is it something more? Is it wealth? Is it having more than you need to survive? Because that's wealth, having more than you need, more than what you require, that's wealth. And then after that point of having more than you need, it's just degrees of wealth. So is it wealth, is, is that happiness and, and just if you're wealthy, if you have more than you need, does that automatically ensure that you're gonna be happy? Is happiness success? Is it getting you know, to the top rung? Is it getting to the zenith of your field or profession or just being really good at what you do for a living? Is it success? Or is happiness just a series of chain reactions that are chemical inside the brain? Uh, is happiness a place? Is happiness a person? Is happiness a state of mind? Or is it something objective, uh, that it's objectively true that this is happy happiness and it's objectively true that this isn't happiness? Or is happiness just subjective? You know, it's your idea of happiness versus mine and what may be happiness for you may not be happiness for me. Or a bit more cynical, is happiness just a mere figment of our imagination? What does it mean to be Happy. Now, philosophers and poets and theologians have all weighed in on this question uh, all throughout the generations of history. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, who I I love to read after and and whose journal contains some of the best one-liners and quotes uh, that you're ever gonna come across. But Marcus Aurelius, he said, if you wanna know what happiness is, happiness is freedom. It's freedom, it's freedom to be, it's freedom to do, it's freedom to think, it's freedom to speak. is that happiness? Uh, Socrates said that, you know, that basically happiness is just living your life, having nothing to lose. So that's a good thought, but, but is that really what it means to be happy? Uh, Epicurus said that happiness is the absence of pain and suffering. And as long as your life is absent of active pain and active suffering, then that's the happy life. Uh, Plato, he said that happiness is taking responsibility for your own happiness and placing it on your shoulders and not delegating it to anybody else. Uh, St. Augustine, the theologian that many people, you know, refer back to and love the writings of, he says that the life of happiness is a life of wisdom, of meaning and purpose. Emmanuel uh, Kant, a philosopher, he said that when it comes to happiness, the more that you want it, uh, the less you're going to have it. Uh, the more you try to be happy, the less that you are going to be happy. Uh, the writer Henry David Thoreau, um, that many of you remember studying in school, maybe had to write a paper about some of his his works. But he says, you know, almost an echo of Kant. He says that that happiness is like chasing a butterfly. You know, you chase the butterfly, you chase the butterfly, you chase the butterfly and the butterfly just keeps escaping and just, it's so elusive, this butterfly. He says, but the moment that you just decide to be still and begin to appreciate everything around you, the butterfly will come to you. And maybe, that, maybe that's happiness. Uh, the English poet and playwright, Joseph Addison, he said that happiness is nothing more, nothing less than having something to do, someone to love and something to do to hope for. And so maybe it is, maybe it's all of those things, maybe it's some of those things, maybe it's just one of those things, but what does it mean to be happy? Now, the point of quoting all of those people and giving all those different perspectives about happiness is there's one thing that's absolutely crystal clear at this point in this message. Happiness is easily desired, but not so easily described. What does it mean to be happy? If you had to give a snippet, if you had to give a sentence, if you had to be short and succinct, and somebody says, what does it mean for you to be happy? How would you answer that question? Uh, Let me ask this question, be a bit more personal. Are you happy? Are you happy? Now, I know there's a pressure anytime someone asks this question to say, yeah, I'm happy. You know, shake your head even though you're not. There's a pressure that says, hey, you should pretend to be happy. Even if you're not happy, you should smile even though, you know, there's no place in your soul that's smiling at the moment. You know, you put on a brave look, you put on a brave face, but are you happy? And I know we're all under pressure when someone says, hey, are you happy? Yeah, I'm happy. Why wouldn't I be happy? Because consciously you believe that you should be happy. And there's something inside of you that says, happiness is good and happiness is right. And it would just be flat out awkward if somebody says, hey, are you happy? And you just look down and says, not at all. Okay, good talk, good talk, and uh, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, That's good, it's wonderful. You know, so we feel this pressure to say, yeah, I'm happy. You know, there's happiness in my life. And and before we get down a rabbit hole and we all just kind of feel a little worse than how we came in, let me just change the question. Do you want to be happy? And of course you do. Of course I do, of course we all do. We all want to be happy and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. But here's the thing, this is what I've discovered, I think other people have discovered this, you've probably discovered this, but maybe we just haven't thought about it and put put this in these terms. Sometimes the hardest time to be happy is when we're supposed to be happy. Sometimes the hardest time to be happy is when we're supposed to be happy. It's when we're chasing the butterfly and we wanna catch the butterfly, but we can't catch the butterfly. It's when we're trying to be happy and we're trying so hard to be happy, but in trying to be happy, we just seemingly can't be happy. When it's expected for you to be happy, I'm suspicious that you've probably discovered that it's very difficult for you to be happy. When people are watching us, expecting us, to be happy. They're looking for signs of happiness on our face. They're looking for smiles, they're looking for laughs. And, and there's something about you know, what's going on around us and what's happening. And, and they're looking at us and there's this expectation, there's this pressure, you should be happy, you should be happy, you should be happy. And we know, we feel that pressure, we feel that expectation. And, and it's, there's, there's just something that makes that expectation and that pressure so difficult to actually be happy. And this is especially true this time of year because during this time of year, there's a not so subtle pressure to be happy. There is this expectation in the air that during this specific time of year, you should be happier than at any other point throughout the year. There's just this pressure, there's this expectation, there's just this thought pattern connected to this time of year that says, you know what? This is the time of year you should be happy. If you can't be happy at any other time of the year, you should be able to be happy during this time of year. I mean, matter of fact, the mantra of this season is happy holidays, happy holidays, happy holidays, happy holidays. And oftentimes we hear happy holidays and it's a reminder that, well, I'm supposed to be happy. And other people, they look like they're happy, but I don't feel so happy. And there's all these expectations and all this pressure to be happy. There's this pressure that's present this time of year that may be present this time of year, more so than at any other time of year. This pressure that says, if you can't be happy now, if you can't be happy in the midst of the holidays, if you can't be happy in the midst of this time of year, when could you be happy? I mean, there's lights. There's music, there's dinners, there's parties, there's decorations, and there's gifts, and not to mention little baby Jesus. I mean, how could you not be happy? It's also idyllic, it's also nostalgic. And every year, every year, we go all out, we do everything we can. We do everything that we can to make this a happy time of year. Some of us, we go over and above to make this season happy. But here's the truth, here's the uncomfortable truth, here's the unpopular truth, here's the unstated truth, here's the truth that's not gonna get on the holiday card. This is the truth that we're not gonna talk about around the table, but here's the truth for a lot of us, especially us adults. We will spend this holiday season like we've spent a lot of other holiday seasons in the past, chasing after happiness, chasing that elusive butterfly and never quite catching it or as Solomon would talk about it in the book of Ecclesiastes, we will spend this holiday season chasing the wind and Thanksgiving, it will come and go and Christmas will come and go. And we will end this season exactly the way we started it, chasing after happiness, chasing that butterfly, trying to feel something we feel pressure to feel, trying to feel the way we're expected to feel. But yet at the end, at the end of Thanksgiving, at the end of Christmas, A lot of us will feel exhausted, disappointed, frustrated, and a bit empty because we tried so hard, we tried so hard, we tried so hard. We smiled, we laughed, we did all the things. We made the hot chocolate, we cooked the turkey, we wrapped the gifts, we decorated the tree, we went to the party, we did all the things, but we never could quite latch on to happiness. What if this year, What if this year could be different? What if this year could be different for you, for me, for us? What if the holidays this year, what if the holidays this year could actually be happy or happier than what they've ever been for you and your family and for the people that are closest to you that you love the most and that love you the most? And you know what? Call me an optimist, call me an idealist. I think it can be. I think it can be a holiday season that is happy. I think it can be a holiday season that is happier than what it's ever been. I think it can be for you, I think it can be for me, I think it can be for all of us. And I think it's possible to actually latch on to a happiness in this season that actually extends beyond this season into all the other seasons of the year. Because here's the honest truth, a lot of us, a lot of people, especially in the country, this country, especially in the West, in the 21st century, A lot of us will spend all year long. We will spend a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of effort chasing after the butterfly of happiness. But yet, even though we spend a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of money and a lot of effort, and we go to a lot of lengths to find happiness, oftentimes on the other end of all of that effort and time and money spent, we just didn't get there, did we? So what if happiness is possible? What if happiness is possible in the most virtuous sense of the word happiness, in the truest sense of the word happiness? And what if it begins with one particular choice, the choice to live life with gratitude? What if gratitude, what if gratitude, if you choose gratitude this season, in a way that you've never chosen gratitude before, and just not choosing gratitude, but living out gratitude and expressing gratitude and thinking gratitude and speaking words of gratitude. What if this season could be truly happy? And what if happiness no longer was something that was elusive or something you couldn't grasp? What if happiness found you? What if happiness became a reality for all of us in this season and all the other seasons, just by simply deciding, I'm going to choose to be a grateful person. I'm going to choose to be a person who has a lifestyle of gratitude. Because here's the thing, science agrees with this, philosophy agrees with this, theology agrees with this. Happiness doesn't exist apart from gratitude. It just doesn't. Happiness does not exist apart from gratitude. So you will never find true happiness. I will never find true happiness. We'll only have cheap substitutes. We'll never have true happiness apart from gratitude. So, If you want to be happy, be grateful. If you wanna be happy, be grateful. Now, it seems too easy to be true. It It seems too simple to be profound. But as I said, science agrees with this. Philosophers have agreed with this throughout the ages. Theology agrees with this. If you want to be happy, be grateful because happiness doesn't exist apart from gratitude. Now, when it comes to gratitude, uh, someone said that it's the highest form of thought because it is a way of thinking. That's what gratitude is. It's not a way of feeling. It's a way of thinking. You have to learn how to think in terms of gratitude before you begin to feel in terms of gratitude. And it's the thinking that leads to the feeling, which leads to the expressing. So you have to learn how to think gratitude. and It's the highest form of thought. It takes a conscious decision. It takes intentionality. It takes effort. It takes you choosing to live a lifestyle characterized by gratitude. And when you do, and when I do, and when we do, we'll find out that gratitude shifts our focus from lesser things to more important things, from shallow things to things of substance. It shifts our focus. That's just the way gratitude works. It deepens our perspective. It softens our heart. It renews our soul. It refreshes and refocuses our mind on what our mind should be focused on. Uh, Gratitude. When it's your lifestyle, my lifestyle, it gives us the momentum to continue to walk forward even in the face of life when life is difficult and life is painful and life is complicated. Uh, Without gratitude, life will just feel harder than it has to. The season will just be less than it has to. Your life and my life will just be less than it has to. We'll get caught in this vicious circle of ingratitude Matter of fact, one writer that I was reading after a few weeks ago said that perhaps the greatest vice, the greatest vice in your life, the greatest vice in my life, the greatest vice in our life is ingratitude. And the scriptures would back this up. You know, Romans 1, it's like a flagship, you know, set of passages that Christians love to refer to, to talk to a lot of things that are going on in culture. You know, that when they knew God, they did not glorify God. God as God. And, and they go through all these lists of sins that evangelical Christians love to talk about. But at the very beginning of that list in Romans one is the term unthankful. So we get really fired up about some things going on in our culture. We get, so, we get fired up about real particular sins, you know, based on what our perspectives are and based on what our life experiences are. We can get real fired up about a small list of issues but perhaps we should be greatly bothered. Perhaps we should be greatly convicted. Perhaps we should be deeply, deeply concerned with the lack of gratitude in our own lives. That God says, it is the will of God, 1 Thessalonians 5. It is the will of God for you to be thankful and to give thanks and to speak words of thanks. This is the will of God, why? Because the benefits of gratitude, they're not insignificant. And not only does science say that, you know, gratitude will make you happier, but science and medicine has well established that it will also make you healthier. It'll lower your blood pressure. And that's good news for some of you. It'll help you sleep better. It, it'll improve your self-esteem. It'll increase your immunity. And that's good right here in the midst of cold and flu season. Be grateful, it, it may be your best chance of not getting sick this season. It lowers chronic pain. It decreases your stress hormones and raises your good hormones. It improves relationships. Here's a word for some of you, and I'm not going to tell you which one of you this is intended for. Gratitude makes us more likable. Don't nudge the person beside of you. It makes us likable. Do you know who it's hard to dislike? A grateful person. Do you know who it's hard to be repelled by? A grateful person. Do you know who we find magnetic and attractive? Who we wanna share common space with? People who practice gratitude. Gratitude, it motivates generosity. It helps us find greater meaning in life. It helps build resilience so that we can face life and endure life. So if you wanna be happier, if you wanna be healthier, Choose gratitude. That's the starting point for happiness. It's the parent of all other virtues. And it's the beginning of a chain reaction, which will ensue in your life and my life that will lead to good things. So to kickstart Thanksgiving week and to kickstart the holiday season, Uh, I want to show us a psalm, uh, a song that's in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, uh, that's all about gratitude, that gives us all a common starting point for gratitude. Because you may be wondering, well, where do I start? What can I be grateful for? And, And in this psalm, we all find some commonalities. We find a starting point to embrace gratitude this holiday season. And it's found in Psalm 107. And Psalm 107 was written after Israel had been taken off into exile, into Babylon. And at the end of those 70 years, God had told them, hey, if you don't repent, if you don't repent, I'm gonna send the Babylonians in and they're gonna leave you decimated and you're gonna serve the Babylonians if you don't repent and turn back to God. But the Israelites were stubborn and they were slow to believe. And so they didn't do what God called them to do. And so God did exactly what he told them that he would allow to happen. The Babylonians came in, conquered Jerusalem in 586 BC and then took off the best and the brightest to Babylon. And it seemed like all hope was gone. Uh, matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah said in those days it was like the stump, like a tree had been it had been just sawn into, and all was left of that tree being Israel was just a dead dry stump. And, and the prophet Ezekiel would say, you know, those days were like Israel being a, a big valley of dead dry bones. But God said, I'm not through with you, Israel, even though you've refused to turn back to me, you've refused to repent, you've refused to believe and to trust me. One of these days that stump will bloom again. One of these days, those valley of dead, dry bones will live again and you will come back home. And that's what God did after 70 years. They came back home and Psalm 107 was to commemorate that. It was to commemorate coming back out of exile, back out of captivity, but it was also written to commemorate all of Israel's history and all of Israel's story up until that point. And the reason that they wrote a song about it was so that no generation of Israelites would ever forget their history because it's an important thing to remember history. It is an important thing to be taught history. It is important to be taught the true version of history and not some slanted you know, historical agenda that you know, a lot of people get taught today. It's important to be taught history. And the Israelites knew that and they wanted to hand off the story of their history to the next generation so that not only they would know their history but also have a framework for understanding their history and a framework for interpreting their history and knowing how to be grateful for their story. And so this is where the Psalmist picks up. And so he begins in Psalm 107 verse one, he says, give thanks to the Lord. And that's kind of where the song begins. And this is the whole thrust of everything that comes after it. And giving thanks to the Lord is just a posture of living. It's a lifestyle, it's a choice, it's a way of thinking, it's a way of feeling, it's a way of living. This is a posture of awareness that you've gotta be aware before you can be grateful. You have gotta be aware of the good that's in your life before you can be grateful. And then you've gotta be willing to acknowledge the good in your life if you're going to be grateful. So he says, it is a good thing to be aware of the goodness in your life. It is a good thing to be willing to acknowledge the good that is in your life because this is the starting point for happiness, giving thanks, giving thanks to the Lord. You say, why is this the starting point for happiness? Because gratitude, gratitude allows us to celebrate and savor all the wins in life. Uh, if we celebrated the good far more than we mourned the bad, we would all be better off. Physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. If we celebrated our successes to the degree that we regret our failures, if we rehearse the victories in our life as much as we rehearse the failures in our life, we would all be better off for it. If we would acknowledge the good, be aware of the good, and breathe it in and take it in, and savor it and enjoy it and celebrate it. We would find that that is the starting point for happiness, the starting point for you and for me, for all of us. Another reason why gratitude is the starting point uh, for happiness is that it helps us outpace unhealthy, toxic emotions. I'm talking about any kind of emotion that undermines hope, peace, joy, love, contentment, self-worth, things like anger or envy or bitterness, jealousy, insecurity, fear, um, resentfulness, uh, those things will undermine the way we truly desire to feel in life, the way that God wills for us to feel in life. If we allow toxic negative emotions to outpace our healthy emotions, that's where misery comes from. That's where unhappiness is found. That's where discontentment lies. But if we're grateful, It allows us to outpace those emotions. We never are totally able to escape them, but we are able to outpace them to the degree that we don't have our very future, our present wellness undermined by those emotions. It's difficult for those toxic emotions to coexist in a lifestyle of gratitude. It just is. It's hard for those toxic emotions to coexist alongside of gratitude. So when you find yourself feeling toxic, and those emotions are not healthy, the first instinct ought to be for all of us is just to choose gratitude. Another reason why it's the starting point is that gratitude alters our perspective. We see things differently. Um, We interpret things different. We focus on what's right more than we focus on what's wrong. Uh, We have a greater awareness of the wonderfully ordinary things that exist in our lives that we tend to take for granted. Uh, We we focus on what's right. We don't fixate on what's wrong. Uh, Our perspective is such that we are able to zero in on what is good and what is wholesome. Um, We get to the place where instead of complaining about roses having thorns, we switch the perspective and we're grateful that thorns have roses. There's two ways to look at it. You can either focus on what's right or you can fixate on what's wrong. It's one or the other. You can't do both. So gratitude alters our perspective. It also, it also increases. It increases, and go on to the next slide there. Gratitude increases our mental fortitude. It it keeps us from getting sidelined by bad things, tough things, difficult things, complicated things in life. Uh, When things that we have discovered are unwanted or uninvited in our lives and the unwanted remains unchanged, when we choose to be grateful for what remains unchanged that we wish would be changed or we wish would change to the better or to the good, from our perspective at least, gratitude allows us to be mentally tough, spiritually tough enough, relationally tough enough to keep on going even when things aren't exactly the way that we want them. And then gratitude anchors us. It anchors us to the present, Let me tell you something you ought to do this Thanksgiving, something everybody ought to just go ahead and embrace. Maybe you do something like this already, but on Thanksgiving Thursday, or whenever you get together and you're sitting at your table, you should just make a one hour rule that nobody gets up from the table for, you know, in less than an hour. Nobody brings a phone to the table. You know, if you're gonna play music, you got all that in place. Everybody comes to the table, no phones. Everybody's gonna be here for an hour and nobody's gonna get served coffee or dessert for at least 45 minutes. And we're just gonna be present. And and we're not gonna miss miss the magic of the moment. We're not gonna miss the frailty of life because not every person sitting at that table may be there next year. Not every person sitting at that table may be there the next day. And to be able to be present and to be able to feel that and think that and to appreciate the simple things, the subtle things, the sound, the taste, the company, the smiles, the laugh, the stories. Gratitude allows us to be present because we're looking for things to be grateful for. It strengthens, gratitude strengthens our relationships. Every relationship, no matter what kind of relationship it is, it'd be stronger if we were in a habit of telling each other, I want you to know how grateful I am for you. I want you to know how grateful I am for you. Don't you feel good? Doesn't it, doesn't it make you feel so wonderful when somebody tells you, I'm so grateful for you. And let me tell you why I'm grateful for you. And it's like, you know, and some of us like, we get a little awkward when people talk to us that way. We'll look at the ground, we'll look at the floor. It's like, okay, hey, yeah, it's good, it's good. Yeah, appreciate it. And it's like, you know, we can be weird sometimes because we're not used to talking that way. And we're not used to listening to those types of words, but we'd all be better off if we get a bit more comfortable expressing our gratitude to each other. Now, back to the Psalm. He says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Now, I want to just slow plow through these opening verses for just a moment, and then we'll pick up speed and momentum towards the end. The goodness of God, when we talk about the goodness of God, the goodness of God is the sum total of all of God's attributes. That's what the goodness of God is. It's the sum total of all of God's attributes. And when you put the sum total of all of God's attributes together, you call it the goodness of God. Uh, God isn't only good, he is goodness itself. He is the essence, he is the embodiment, he is the existence of true goodness. He is the plumb line of goodness. It is the fundamental aspect of God's character that God is good. Uh, The two most important questions that anybody will ever ask is, the first one, does God exist? And once you wrestle that one to the ground, and if you come up with the conclusion that you believe that there's ample evidence, and I believe that there is, to believe that God's existence is possible, that God's existence is probable, that God exists. The second follow-up to that question is, is God good? If God exists, then the obvious next question is, is the God that exists a good God? And Christians, those of us who believe in the scriptures, who trust the scriptures, we believe that God's goodness represents everything that God is, everything that God has done. Everything that God is doing, everything that God will do and everything that God desires for you and I to experience in this life, that is the goodness of God. It means that God always has your best interest in his heart, that God always has my best interest in his heart. And what that means is that when life is good, God is good. But it also means when life isn't good, God is still good. That God is good when he answers my prayers, God is good when he doesn't answer my prayers. When the healing comes, God is good. If God chooses not to send the healing, God is still good. Too many of us, the reason we get so despondent and disillusioned in faith and with life and just existence on this planet is we have too small a definition of God's goodness. You know, someone's in a near car crash. And this, man, I I was just about in that car wreck and there were four people that died. And I just barely missed it. And we'll say, man, I'll tell you what, God is good. God is good. Somebody breaks a bone, they go to the ER and they take some images and they see something on the x-ray and they're like, we wanna, we wanna take a, a deeper look at this, a longer look at this. And it comes out to be something serious that they would have never known about had they not broke their arm. And it's like, man, had I not gone in, they would have never caught that. And, and that could have been a totally different outcome. We'll say, man, to tell you, God is so good, isn't he? Uh, somebody survives cancer, they go through surgery, they go through treatment, you know, they have a miraculous experience with God, whatever it may be, we say, man, God is so good. But what about for the people that doesn't escape the crash? Is God not still good? For those who didn't go and have an early detection of what would be a terminal disease that they would not survive, is God still not good? God is good for those who are healthy. And even when we're not healthy, it's an important Truth to know, God is still good. God is not good just because things are good. God is good. God is always good. And God always does good, no matter what. So if you're looking for something to be grateful for, let's all just read this out loud together at all of our churches, ready, let's go. God is always good. God always does good, no matter what. One more time, out loud. God is always good. And God always does good, no matter what, because he's able to weave in the happenings of this life, the pain, the difficulties, the wrong turns, the mistakes, failures. He's able to weave all of that into his eternal purposes. And he works in the darkness to bring us to a place of greater light. He works in the pain to bring us to a place of greater purpose. He works in the loss to bring us to a place of greater gain. And he's working in the bad, all the details of the bad, and he's turning all of the bad out for good. And that is something to be grateful for. So the psalmist says, so let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Because everybody has a story. Everybody has a history. Everybody's got a story. And the songwriter realizes that Israel needs to never forget their story. And they need to know how to frame that story and interpret that story and be grateful for that story. Even the parts that aren't pretty. How to be grateful for the ugly parts, the dark parts, the painful parts, the disappointing parts. So Israel, they'd spent years and years into captivity and God brought them back home. And and that was an example of God's goodness. But Israel's history, you know, all the way back to the very beginning, it was one of ups and downs. A lot of wrong turns, a lot of missteps, a lot of sidesteps, a lot of setbacks. When it came to Israel, there was a lot of stubborn rebellion in their past, a lot of willful defiance in their past, a lot of heartache, a lot of good, a lot of bad, a lot of success, a lot of failure. Their story is laced with all the same things that your story is laced with. Their story is laced with all the things that my story is laced with. But the Psalmist wants the, the, the nation of Israel to know and to never forget that their story was being written by the goodness of God, that a good God was the author of their story. And no matter what the details were, God was always at work in the details, working things out for their good, working things out for our good, because he is himself good. So the Psalmist goes on, he's gonna give us four examples of Israel's history, Israel's past and their metaphors, their pictures, their imagery that we can all latch onto because each of these four portraits, I guarantee you to some degree, to some extent has been a part of your story, maybe a part of your story right now. And it's something we can all relate to. And, and, and this is the point that he wants to make. These individual moments, these seasons were just mere chapters in a greater story that was still unfolding. He says, some, some, some of Israel, at times and places, they wandered in the desert wastelands. You remember 40 years for one generation uh, following Moses around in the wilderness. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Uh, these were the restless ones. These were the people who who wandered from place to place, job to job, relationship to relationship. They just had burning questions, uh, but no answers. They were always seemingly looking for something that they couldn't find. Their souls were always unsettled. Their thoughts were always unsettled. They couldn't find rest for their souls. I mean, they just lived life with such angst and and such discomfort. Uh, They were lost in many ways. They had no true north. They they had nothing to guide them and they wandered away because that's what happens. When you get restless and your soul's unsettled and you have no true north, you just wander away. They were chronically discontent, always grumbling because when there's an absence of gratitude, that's what happens, we grumble. They felt aimless, they felt purposeless. Their life had a sense that it lacked meaning It felt empty. And so they tried to fill the gap in lots of different ways. And he says, then when they got to the point that they could do nothing else, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from all of their distress. And he's gonna follow this pattern over and over again throughout this song. He says, he led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle, that's home, Let them give thanks then. This is their response. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and for his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and he fills the hungry with good things. That is to say that he offers meaning and purpose and contentment and, you know, community and excitement and passion and purpose. He offers it in a way that no one and no other thing can He offers rest, he offers satisfaction, he offers contentment, he offers us a home and a family and a table to sit down at that we do not deserve to sit at, that he's invited us to be a part of. And he says, you should be grateful Israel because when you failed, God's love did not fail you. When you failed God, God did not fail you. His love never failed, his love never decreased, so give thanks. And so, you know, Israel's like, yeah, okay, I can still relate to that because you know, I may feel that way in my heart. I may feel that way in my soul. My thoughts may be wondering, you know, I feel kind of meaningless. I, I, I feel kind of purposeless. And he says, so think about it. And then he goes on, he says, some, some sat in darkness and other darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains. Why were they suffering? Because they rebelled against God's commands and despised the plans of the most high. And these are the rebellious ones and they're in prison, but they're in a prison of their own choosing. They're in a prison of their own making. It's as if that they walked themselves to the prison and they walked up to the door and they opened the door and they walked into the prison cell and then they grabbed the key and they locked the door and they threw the key away. He says, at times Israel was in a prison, a captivity of their own Choosing, They were hostage to their own rebellion. They were imprisoned by their own desire for freedom and autonomy and independence. And that desire for autonomy and independence, it just resulted in imprisonment. They were imprisoned to themselves. They were imprisoned to lies. And that's where they were. So he subjected them to bitter labor. And it was bitter because they were living out the consequences of their choices. They felt hopeless, they felt helpless, He says, he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled and there was no one to help. And this can be true of all of us, that some of us today may be in a prison of our own choosing. We walked ourselves to the door. We walked in, we shut the door. We locked it, we threw the key away. In a prison of addiction, a prison of bitterness, unforgiveness, grudging, comparison, greed, arrogance, whatever it is. That many of us, some of us, may be in a prison this morning and nobody put us in that prison except for us. We're imprisoned to a way of thinking. We're imprisoned to a religious way of thinking. We're imprisoned to comparison against other people. We're imprisoned by envy or by jealousy or by unforgiveness and nobody put us there. We chose to be there. And now we feel like there's no help. He says that it was that way for Israel. And then, They cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness, the utter darkness, and he broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he breaks down the gates of bronze and cuts through the bars of iron. He gives freedom from the things that hold us back. So what's holding you back? What's holding me back? What prison have you checked yourself into? Because he's willing to set us free. He's willing to allow us to escape the bitter consequences of our own choices. He can set us free, even though we've imprisoned ourselves. He goes on and he says, some some became fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the, the gates of death. They were so enlightened, you know, as the apostle Paul would write, they were so enlightened, they became foolish. Their own choices became the source of their own pain. I agree with Jordan Peterson. I think I've I've, I've quoted him before when he says this. There's no worse hell than to be in the middle of hell and know that you caused it. There's no worse hell in this life than to be in the middle of hell and you know that you're the one who caused it. And, And they got to the place where they lost their will to live. They had hurt and wounded themselves so much they lost their zeal and passion for life. They made life harder than it had to be. And he says, that's part of Israel's story. Then though, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them sacrifice thank offerings. Let them embrace gratitude, choose gratitude and tell of his works with songs of joy. He keeps going, he says, some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters, for he spoke and stirred up a tempest, a storm that lifted high the waves. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits end. They were caught up in the middle of what was unwanted and what was uninvited. They're in the middle of something they can't control. You know what you call that? You call that a storm. You ever walked outside in the middle of a thunderstorm and tried to do what Jesus does? I did that a few years ago. There was a big storm coming out, walked down the front porch, I said, peace be still. And then I was getting so wet from the rain and the wind, I went back inside. It's like, it didn't work for me. Sometimes we're right in the middle of something we have absolutely zero control over, zero control over. Somebody else's decisions, zero control over it something that's going on in the world, zero control over it. A health experience that's currently going on and zero control over it. You would love to be able to manipulate it. You would love to be able to control it or to harness it in some way, but it's absolutely out of your control. It's out of my control. And that's where they are. They're tossed about. Life's just tossing them from one wave to the other. And they feel like there's nothing, there's nothing else I can take on at the moment. If there's one more thing that happens, I think I'm going under and that's the picture. And then, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The ways of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, I bet they were. And he guided them to their desired haven, to safe waters, to a safe harbor. So let them give thanks to the Lord. Let them choose gratitude for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. So what do we learn from all of this? What is it that we can take away from all of this? Because Israel's story in many ways mirrors our own story. And in their story, we find reasons, real reasons, practical reasons, reasons out of our own life's details to be grateful in this very moment. What do we learn? We learn that God is good because when the storms of life hit, he comes closer to us than the storm ever could. Those are Spurgeon's words. And Spurgeon, he observed as many of us have or will have the opportunity to that when the storms come and they will come and when a storm comes, I mean, you're in the middle of it. You're immersed in the middle of it. And how is it that even when you're immersed in the middle of the storm, that He comes closer than the storm? When you're enveloped by the darkness, you're consumed by the heaviness of the darkness, He comes closer to us than the darkness ever can. And as present as pain is, as immersive as pain feels, like there's no division between the pain that we feel and the cause of that pain. It's seemingly nothing could be closer but He comes closer than the pain can come. He comes closer than the suffering and He holds us in His arms and He doesn't change and He doesn't falter and He doesn't fail and He keeps on working these things out for our good and He refuses to leave us and He refuses to forsake us and He refuses to let us go. He's closer to us than the storm and even maybe even better news or equally good news, He's bigger than the storm. And when He chooses not to say peace be still and the wind and the rain subsides, he can say peace be still to your soul and you can have peace right in the midst of unsettled seas. What else did we learn? We learned that what's out of our control is always under his control. The one that knows all things, controls all things, can be trusted with all things. He is for me, he is with me and he's working all things out for my good and for your good. These are things to be thankful for. God, I just want to be aware and acknowledge that what's out of my control, I'm right in the middle of it, I cannot control it. I can't control him, I can't control her. I can't control the choices. I can't control what the company does, what the economy does, what the government does. I can't choose what's going on right now. I have no control over it, but God, I just wanna acknowledge and be grateful that it is under your control, even though it's out of my control. What else do we learn out of this song? and this is good news, even when I imprison myself, he's still willing to set me free. Aren't you glad that God doesn't say some of the things that we say? Well, you made your bed. You made your bed, partner, go ahead and lie in it. Now you did this to yourself. You just need to wallow in it for a while. You just need to suffer under all those consequences of your choices. You need to learn your lesson. Even when we imprison ourselves, He's still willing to set us free. He's just waiting for somebody to say, Lord, help me. And He's willing to set you free from the very things that perhaps you have imprisoned yourself with. Here's, the, here, here's the other good news when my wounds are self inflicted, He's still willing to heal me. When I hurt myself, when I devastate myself, when I set myself up for failure, when I inflict wounds against my soul or my mind, when I choose to practice self-hatred, self-loathing, whatever it may be, when I am inflicting wounds on myself, He's still willing to heal me. And so the Psalmist, He wraps it all up in the very last verse. And he says, one last thing, Israel. Those who are wise will take all of this to heart. They, whoever they are, they will see in our history, in our story, the faithful love of the Lord. And if that's what they're gonna see, you say, well, who's they? Well, I think certainly he was probably thinking about us because God, promised that through Israel would come a savior. And through all of their convoluted up and down misstepped history, God refused to abandon them because God had made a promise to them that one day through Israel would become a savior, a king. And we look at Israel's story and it would have been much different to live it, but we look at it now and we say, isn't God so good? Isn't God so faithful, his love never fails. And the point is that the goodness of God, the goodness of God will be the story of my life because it became the story of Israel's life. When we tell the stories of our life, and one day we will, most of us will see death coming, we will. And when we tell the story of our life, we'll talk about how our scars became strength, how our wisdom became, our wisdom was born out of all that pain and all of those failures. How setbacks were just setups. We'll tell stories about how we were lost and God came after us and he found us and he brought us home and he brought us to his table and he brought us in his family. We'll tell the story about the thorn that we prayed that God would remove and remove and remove, but he didn't, but it opened up us to the grace of God to a degree that we'd never experienced it. We'll talk about when the storm came near, God came closer still. That when there was no way, he made a way. And when he didn't make a way out, he brought me through it. My hope, it held tight, even when all hell broke loose. That when I took a wrong turn, somehow I ended up at the right place. That the best case scenario was that God was in charge of my worst case scenario. That the the uninvited, the unwanted, somehow became just what I needed. That I got lost, I wandered away, but it turned out for my good. I, I was hurt, but somehow, it turned out for my good. I lost, but somehow it turned out for my good. Those tears that I cried, somehow it turned out for my good. Because he's working it for good. If you want to make, if you want to make this season truly wonderful, be grateful. If you want to be happy, be grateful. So here's what I want to ask all of us to do. This is this is real practical this week, starting today. I want you to consider, and I think you should. I don't even think you should consider. What is there to consider? I think you should go into your phone and I think you should put an alarm at 107 p.m. Psalm 107, put an alarm at 107 p.m. And every day this week at 107 p.m. Wherever you find yourself and that alarm goes off, you find just a quiet place just for a moment to be aware and to acknowledge the goodness that exists in your life and give a word of thanks to God. God, I wanna thank you. I wanna thank you for this office that I'm in. I wanna thank you for this company that I work in. I wanna thank you for the goodness that's in my life. And you just spend a moment and you express it. But also after you express that gratitude to God at 1 PM, why don't you pick up the phone? Why don't you send a text? Why don't you walk up to someone you're close to nearby and just say, I want you to know how very grateful I am for you. And I wanna tell you why. Spend every day this week practicing gratitude. Set it a reminder, 107 p.m. every single day. And when that alarm goes off, it's just a prompt, it's just a cue, hey, this is a moment to choose gratitude. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. All of our churches, all of our campuses with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, I just wanna give us a moment to start right now, to spend a moment consciously evaluating growing aware of the so many good things, the crowded goodness of God, Alexander McLaren called it, the crowded goodness of God in your life and mine, to be aware of it, to acknowledge it. So just in your own heart and in your own mind for just a moment, let's just sit and let's think about the good things in this moment, in our past, and let's just whisper up in our heart a word of thanks, a word of gratitude to God. God, in this moment, we choose gratitude. We choose to believe that you're good, that everything you do is good and your goodness is so present Sometimes not obvious, but always present. God, you're taking things from our past and you're turning it good. You're you're taking things in our present and you're turning it for good. And God, one day when we tell our stories, it is gonna be a good story because it was authored by a good God. It is a good thing to give you thanks. You are worthy of our gratitude. Every good gift and every perfect gift, it comes down from you, our Father in heaven. So Father, we choose gratitude this day and every day, this season and all the other seasons. Let gratitude grip our hearts and our thoughts in Jesus' name.